I'm Tom Reaney, host of Jazz Beat at New England Public Media, and speaking with Ricky Riccardi for the third time in our uh, interview with Ricky about his recent uh, biographical volume on Louis Armstrong, Heart Full of Rhythm, The Big Band Years of Louis Armstrong. And Ricky, we've made uh, great progress in uh, two previous hours of conversation, getting all the way from about 1929 to 31. And uh, with your assistance, of course, we're going to move a little faster um, this time around. But curious, here in the 1930s, Louis Armstrong has a couple of uh, trips abroad, one to uh, England in 1932, and then a, a lengthy or 18-month uh, sojourn to Europe in 1933. How about a little background on, uh, on what occasioned those trips, and especially the second one? Sure. I mean, Armstrong in Europe, it's it's a fascinating subject from, from the beginning because they uh, they catch on to his records pretty quickly. Um, the trumpeter Nat Ganella did a lot to spread the word, and there was all the music periodicals over there. There really wasn't a jazz press in America, but over there they had Melody Maker, they had Rhythm, they had various periodicals that were charting the scene. Anytime a Louis Armstrong record came out in Parlophone, these writers would lose their breath just trying to come up with new superlatives of how amazing this was. So come 1932, Louis, I think we talked about this last time, he had been plagued by gangsters. Every city he went to, he needed bodyguards. There was court cases. There was gunpoint. I mean, it was the height of drama. And uh, it just became too nerve-wracking to go to the big cities anymore. So Johnny Collins, Armstrong's manager at the time, I mean, he had a 20, 30-year career in vaudeville, booking vaudeville acts before Lewis, including a stint in England around 1911. So he knew the territory, uh, must have placed a few phone calls or sent a few wires, and got Lewis a plum engagement at the Palladium in July 1932. So they got on the boat. And they went to England, and uh, they ended up spending four months there. Uh, the first month or so was in the Palladium, but then they hit you know, Glasgow, Scotland. They they went all through um, through the territory. And um, Armstrong and Collins documented every thing they did with a scrapbook. You know, anytime they appeared in the newspaper, anytime they got a concert program, anytime a photograph was taken, they clipped it out and put it into a scrapbook that we have at the Louis Armstrong archives. And it is one of one of our prized possessions because I don't know if this material survives anywhere else. And it is truly an example of the good, the bad, and the ugly because uh, the musicians, for the most part, but not unanimously, the musicians were just bowled over. They had never heard anything like this. Um, but the regular music critics, the more classically trained critics, um, the theater critics, they lost their minds, and they had never seen anything like this before. Armstrong's combination of high notes and showmanship and the handkerchief, the faces, the grimacing. There were multiple stories about his neck bulging out like a python and how much he sweats. They couldn't get over it. And then some of them just got downright racist, comparing him to a, you know, an ape and, you know, like he was just let loose from the jungles of Africa and all this kind of stuff. So it was controversial there was there's one recap in rhythm magazine that was called the armstrong war and another one in uh i think the telegraph is called storm over negro trumpeter and so you know we don't really think of louis armstrong you know we we think of gentle smiling satchmo but here he was a true lightning rod and uh one of the fascinating things I cover is at the end of the four months, his real cheerleaders, those writers in 
uh, melody maker and rhythm people like Spike Hughes, um, Dan Ingram, um, the young Max Jones. Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, they had some of the mystique erased after seeing Armstrong live. I, I think it was Spike Hughes who mentioned that when he listened to those OK records, he pictured an older black man maybe sitting in a rocking chair. You know, it kind of had this lazy stereotype. And then here comes Armstrong with this, you know, you know, if you watch the footage from 33, you know, when he does Dinah and I cover the waterfront, you know, my God, you know, the you, you can't take your eyes off him. So uh, they had a hard time wrapping their heads around what they, you know, their preconceived notions of Armstrong and the living, breathing figure on stage. And so by the time he returns in 33, um, well, the first off, he has a huge fight on the ship over with Johnny Collins and severs their relationship. And he was also battling for the first time, issues with his chops. And apparently when he first got to England, uh, he could barely play in the beginning. And so he compensated with more singing, more showmanship, more comedy, which of course drove the dance band critics crazy. <laughs> and there was, you know, these uh, incredibly mean-spirited articles about pointless music and all commercial and, you know, begging Lewis that, you know, you'll always have the public, but you need us, the critics, and you need to change your ways if you're going to, you know... Um, keep us on your side. And so he spends a few months in England, he rests the chops, but then he um, he hires the, the band leader, Jack Hilton, to book him a tour of Scandinavia. And the first time he arrives in Copenhagen, there were so many people waiting for him at the train station, he was sure it was for somebody else. And uh, no, it was for him. And God bless the Danes, they were the ones who you know, had the, uh, the, you know, just the genius idea of putting a camera in front of him, no stereotypes, no script, no anything. It was like, just do what you're doing on stage. And they filmed him and his hot Harlem band doing, I cover the waterfront Dinah and tiger rag. And, uh, we watched that today, you know, Ken Burns leaned on it and every documentarian he leans on, it's all over YouTube. I mean, that's like the defining clip of young Louis Armstrong and all of his brilliance. But, uh, in the book, I go behind, you know, that, the making of that film to show what the critics were saying. And this is the Louis Armstrong that the critics in that period couldn't stand, you know, all the comparisons to gorillas in Africa and you know, young Leonard feather wringing his hands about how this was no longer the sincere Armstrong and all that stuff, you know, was being hurled at that same guy in that 1933 clip that has become uh, so immortal. So it's an interesting kind of rocky relationship, but he ends up spending um, two full years almost in, in Europe and doesn't come back home till January 35. A couple of the positive things that come to mind from that period are, uh, and you allude to this uh, uh, earlier, the critics enthusing over, you know, everything he was doing. And I think it was Spike Hughes who said something about, I've run out of things to say about uh, Louis Armstrong's brilliant records. And then I think the number that met him at Copenhagen was 10,000 at the yeah. train station there. Yeah. Quite amazing. Yep. Now, when, when he was abroad, there were encounters or potential prospective playing arrangements that were being considered for Lewis and Coleman Hawkins, and then, um, uh, and I think that went awry. And how about uh, Armstrong and Django Reinhardt during that period? Well, I'll, I'll take Django first because that's pretty easy. Lewis uh, leaves England in July of '34. Uh, his chops are gone, and he decides to move to Paris. And when he got there, he could he couldn't even put a trumpet up to his lips without bleeding. And so 
uh, the way he put it, he spent a few months just kind of lazying around Paris. Just, you know, I think him and Alpha lived in a hotel. There's actually a plaque at the hotel <laughs> now. I forget which hotel it is, but where he stayed. Uh, but Django, of course, worshipped Louis Armstrong. I mean, that was probably his biggest influence. And there, there, there are stories that Django uh, played for him. Uh, there's a story that Django played and Louis sang. Uh, but there's also stories that Louis, you know, didn't play trumpet with him because he couldn't and that Lewis was was pleased but you know I, I don't think um there was any like big bang moment like oh my god you know you're the greatest guitarist and hugging and kissing and all that stuff I, I think you know it was like mutual admiration but later on you know they, they were both on the bill at the Nice Jazz Festival in 48 and there's some photos that have come out from that occasion and reminiscing in 1970 a year before he died Lewis told Max Jones about how much he admired Django and he remembered the great times they had in Paris. So, you know, I think sometimes it might be overblown either way. Some people say that Lewis just dismissed him. Some people say that Lewis just loved him. I think, you know, it was like, this guy's great. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for playing. Yeah, maybe I'll sing a little bit. But, uh, you know, nothing really, No, maybe no fireworks there between the two of them. H Armstrong and Hawkins, you could say all fireworks <laughs> because, um, I get into some of this in the book. There's a there's a weird uh, relationship there, and I'm still not quite at the heart of it because my initial draft was pretty. I don't want to say damning, but it was pretty one sided because everything I was bumping up against um, Hawkins, yeah, according to Cootie Williams, legitimately his word was hated Louis Armstrong. Yeah, they were together in Fletcher Henderson's band, and Hawkins just did not have that showbiz showmanship singing mugging gene you know he just wanted to perform and improvise and so the fact that lewis becomes so popular and he's making movies and doing these pop tunes there was definitely some jealousy there uh you know when dan morgenstern read the initial draft of my book he told me to tone it down because he had seen the two of them smoke a joint together on a bus at newport and there's there's a famous quote from 44 where Hawkins goes on and on about how he could just, he wishes he could attain some of the greatness of Louis Armstrong, but others such as Scott DeVoe have read that as sarcastic. And I think, I think there might be some of that as well. And so I can't quite pin it down. I do think there's probably more sarcasm and jealousy, but I do think they, they tolerated each other. But Hawkins leaves Fletcher Henderson. He's coming to England. He uh, also taps Jack Hilton to help book his tour. And by this point, Melody Maker was really plugged in to, you know, all these Americans coming over because uh, Ellington had just come over. Cap Calloway was coming over. So um, this was kind of a big deal. And so Melody Maker sets up a concert of Coleman Hawkins with Louis Armstrong's band. And they go to the press and they put it on the front page and they have a date and it's going to be for musicians only. And this is going to be the biggest thing in the world. And they never cleared it with Armstrong and they never cleared it with Hawkins. So Hawkins arrives and Lewis sends him a, a, a sweet welcoming telegram. But it's one of those Rashomon type things where you know, there's different versions of the story. Um, but at the last minute, Armstrong says, I won't go through with it. This is going to do me no good. I'm done. And the Melody Maker, they just simply eviscerate him. Uh, Percy Brooks, who famously gave Armstrong uh, the Satchmo nickname, just tears him apart about artistic temperament. And Armstrong was afraid of Hawkins and didn't trust it. And, oh, you know, we thought more of you, Lewis. And Coleman Hawkins is a true artist. But then 
another British magazine, they, they got Armstrong's side of the story, and he said that he had tried setting up rehearsals with Hawkins for like a week. He had his saxophone player uh, transcribed Hawkins' features with Henderson, and they got the right keys, and they, they just wanted to do it right. And Hawkins was dismissive. He had no desire really to rehearse. Like, yeah, we'll get there. We'll do it. And so Lewis wasn't about to go on and just do something unrehearsed, unplanned. And, and he got the the heavy whiff that Hawkins was not into it or that Hawkins thought he was bigger than him. And so Lewis said, fine, it's over. Pull the plug. I'm not doing it. And so uh, when you read both sides of the story, there's definitely some egos clashing there. But the Melody Maker, they made it so one-sided that it kind of soured, I think, the British coverage of Armstrong. And then later on in the year, when Lewis gets this uh, French manager, N.J. Kennedy, Kennedy works Armstrong like a dog. Lewis's lips fall apart again. Uh, Kennedy is, like, double-booking him. Um, he's, you know, it's just kind of crazy. And, and paying him nothing, actually cutting his salary the longer he works with Kennedy. So Armstrong finally can't deal with that anymore and leaves Kennedy stranded, comes back to America. And where does Kennedy turn? To the Melody Maker and writes a, a front-page editorial blasting Armstrong, you know. So it's really kind of... Um, an ugly thing that that the and it's kind of the the birth of this that would haunt Armstrong for the next almost forty years of the jazz press kind of sharpening the knives and uh, you know overblowing things just to really wring their hands about the disappointment of Louis Armstrong and his behavior and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. During that period of eighteen months, nearly two years, uh, Armstrong goes from recording prolifically to. Hardly at all, but there is one session that he he made before he came back to the States, and I thought we'd hear a song of the Vipers from that. Can you set this up for us, Ricky? Sure, yeah. So I mentioned N.J. Kennedy. That was Armstrong's French manager. He put together a band, um, mostly Americans who were living over there, the incredible Herman Chittison on piano, uh, Peter Ducange on reeds, Ollie Tynes on drums. Uh, great little band, and they did one session for French Brunswick on November 7th, 1934, and um, this was kind of controversial because Armstrong had a contract with RCA Victor, and unbeknownst to Armstrong, Johnny Collins, uh, who they had severed ties, Collins was back home in America, renewing Armstrong's RCA contract and collecting his royalties and forging his signature, Meanwhile, Kennedy was frantically writing to RCA saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I am Louis Armstrong's manager. He did not renew his contract. He has no association with RCA Victor. I'm recording him for French Brunswick. And so they recorded these six sides. And as soon as they hit the market, RCA swooped in and said, nope, you know, you violated your contract. And they they disappeared and they, they became collector's items for almost a decade. Eventually they came out on a American 78 album on the Vox label in 1947, but they really kind of show Armstrong in transition because he, uh, he opens the date, just that same wild man that he was in this period. You hear the stories about hitting all the high notes at the end and blowing out his lips and all that stuff. Well, there's a incredible version of tiger rag. There's two versions of St. Louis blues, just one high note after another crazy tempos. I mean, this is, you know, maybe the closest we'll get to that onstage phenomenon. But then he does On the Sunny Side of the Street for the first time, which he had been in the repertoire for a while, and he closes the date with this song, song of the Vipers, which apparently was in his repertoire from 31. 
Uh, I think there's a radio mention of him doing a song called Cry of the Vipers, which I assume is the same thing. But it's really kind of forecasting the future because the whole thing is just high notes floating. He's in his own time zone here. You know, I mean, the, the band is just riffing lightly behind him. But there's no real pyrotechnics. There's no, you know, I'm going to hit a, a million notes or play a Western blues type thing. It's just this kind of relaxed. I, you know, it's almost impossible to get through because of the, the endurance you need. But he is transitioning to that mid to late 30s style that will really uh, mature when he comes back to America. Uh, so a, a wild session from start to finish where he's like one foot is still in this uh 1920s, early 30s, blasting out the high notes, pyrotechnics, and the other foot is love songs, ballads, floating high notes, tone, and, uh, you know, that's that's the direction he goes for the next 35 years. So here's Louis Armstrong, November 1934, Song of the Vipers. <laughs> Thank you. 
Louis Armstrong's Song of the Vipers. Armstrong returned to the States early in 1935, and Ricky, as already was evident, uh, Louis Armstrong worked with the backing bands, with pickup groups, with ad hoc type ensembles, and he made the most of them, of course, uh, all the time. But I found a quote from Max Jones, the English jazz critic and uh, later on a biographer of Armstrong. And he said, uh, Lewis could never be bothered with all the extra musical headaches of keeping a band together. And when he came back to the States, he eventually connected with Louise Russell and worked with Louise Russell's wonderful band for a number of years. Can you set that up for us, please? Sure. Well, yeah, to, to piggyback on the, on the Max Jones quote, it, it's true. Um, Armstrong was not your typical, you know, Ellingtonian band leader who was going to control every section and work on the arrangements or even a Count Basie who can look at an arrangement and pare it down or whatever. Armstrong was happy to let his musicians do what they wanted, happy to let the arrangers do what he wanted because he was going to do what he wanted. And some arrangers knew him better than others. Like I think Armstrong always gave Cy Oliver the most credit for just you know, the the backings were perfect. But really, um, there's a great Ruby Braff quote where Armstrong told Ruby Braff about how if the band on stage sounds great and they're really cooking, sure, you know, you listen to them, you get some inspiration, you play better than ever. But if the band on stage is sad and, you know, barely keeping it together, well, you tune them out and you turn up the band in your head. <laughs> and so uh, when we listen to some of these records and, and the bands don't sound that great, we can only imagine what Lewis is hearing because, you know, uh, in his mind, it must have been like an orchestra back there. And I think when young Teddy, when young Teddy Wilson joined him in '33, uh, he t he told Teddy Wilson, you know, don't play too many runs or any fancy stuff because you know just hit the chords. And he goes, I'm listening to you and I'm listening to the drums. And I don't, I said, I don't hear anybody else. <laughs> and so uh, that's that's where his ear went. You know, as long as the piano players just laid out those changes and he could feel those drums, he was comfortable. So. Uh, he always said his happiest band, though, was, was Zilner Randolph's band, the band uh, with a lot of ex-New Orleans musicians that recorded between um, April 31 and March of 32. And so when Lewis comes back, he is at rock bottom. Uh, when he comes back from Europe, you know, I mean, his, his lips are so shot he can't play for about five or six months and managers are warring over his contract. He has no recording contract and no bands and no gigs. And so, you know, he, he he finds Joe Glazer, which is part one, and then needing a band, he calls up Zilner Randolph. And Randolph actually gave Armstrong some trumpet lessons, which people lost their minds when they saw <laughs> Randolph basically teaching him like a beginner's student. student. But that's, that's how dire Armstrong's chops were in. And Randolph put together a band, and they never recorded. Um, and then something happened where Lewis was going to New York, and New York's union, you know, they they had their own they had their own laws that you know you had to be living in New York for six months and all this kind of stuff. And and Randolph believed that Joe Glazer could have pulled the strings to keep him as the band, but he was starting to um, uh, go against Joe Glazer a little bit, telling him he was working too hard, you got to do this, you got to do that. And we said both Joe Glazer and Armstrong's. Uh, girlfriend, future wife, Alpha Smith, they both started you know, turning their, their noses down at Randolph. So the, the writing was on the wall. Randolph got the boot. And so Glazer figured it was better just to hire a band. And at first he thought about Teddy Hill, but Teddy Hill said that he had been working so hard 
to establish the band as his own that you know he he wasn't ready to trade it in and so then they turned to Luis Russell and Russell you know if you know the Russell story born in Panama but he he wins a lottery and he ends up in New Orleans pretty early and he plays with Louis Armstrong at, at Tom Anderson so they knew each other from then then in 29 where my book begins you know Armstrong fronts the Russell band for uh, an engagement at the Savoy. They record together for OK. They they joined forces again in 29 and 30. And they just were you know, a match made in heaven. Because Russell, even though he also, like Teddy Hill, worked to establish the band, uh, you know, he didn't really have the personality. You know, he was more of a behind-the-scenes guy. You know, he worked on the band, the arrangements, the rehearsals, the tempos, the song choices. But, you know, he wasn't really a front man. And so he realized that this was a major opportunity and that Louis Armstrong was, you know, maybe one step removed from God. <laughs> so he was, fi he was fine with it. So I think Joe Glazer paid $10,000. Um, and next thing you know, Louis Russell's orchestra became Louis Armstrong's orchestra. And uh, that's how it went for the next uh, five years. Then, then Russell stepped down as music director and Joe Garland stepped in. But that five-year period, 35 to 40, with all those Decca recordings, uh, and especially the live broadcasts that have surfaced in recent years, really shows that that band could cook. They, they really never got the credit they deserved. A lot of New Orleanians on that band, right? Yes, and especially as as time went on. I mean, when when the band first started, it already had Pops Foster on bass and Paul Barburn on drums. But then by '37, they had Red Allen on trumpet and Albert Nicholas on clarinet. And uh, you know, some musicians, I know Snub Mosley, the trombonist, complained about that how there was a New Orleans click in that band, <laughs> and you know, they sometimes made it difficult for the non-New Orleanians to you know, even exist. But uh, I don't think Lewis got involved in much of that drama, but he was happy. He was, he was always happy around uh, what he called homeboys, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned uh, Zilner Randolph, who had worked with Armstrong basically out of Chicago earlier in the 30s, and then because of the union uh, deal, gets, you know, pushed away once uh, Armstrong is back in New York. But um, you mentioned in the book that Randolph's had composed the song Old Man Mose, and that uh, Joe Glazer bought it from him for $50. Um, Randolph had a sense that this was a good tune that was going to go somewhere, but but he was desperate, I think he said, to save his house, and, yeah. and he accepted the $50 fee. But, uh, but Old Man Mose becomes a showpiece for Louis Armstrong and a significant recording culturally. It's something that Adam Clayton Powell uh, writes about uh, before... Paul became, uh, you know, the congressman from New York. Why don't you set up Old Man Mose for us, and, and we'll listen to that next. Sure, because, uh, you know, Randolph writes the song and sells it for $50, and this is before they had the record contract. So Glazer signs a deal with Jack Cap of Decca Records, and Lewis makes his first session October 3rd of 35. But then for the next session, he brings this Old Man Mose. And uh, I think... You know, I don't want to assume, but I think to a lot of the uh, the quote unquote jazz folks, this kind of represented a novelty. You know, there's a little bit of trumpet playing in the beginning. It's got a minor key, so you know Lewis is in the groove. But then it's kind of a silly vocal. 
discovering an old man is dead and the call and response with the band. And, you know, it's a fun little sing-along number. But to the folks who were like, you know, just a few years earlier, there was West End Blues and Weatherbird, you know, now we're singing about discovering corpses, you know, we <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen. Um, and, you know, missing all the cultural significance, because um, I'll admit that I knew a little bit, I knew that Moe's was sometimes used in that era as a, almost like a substitute for Uncle Tom, almost like a subservient, you know, old uh, black man who's just catering to white people. But researching the book, the amount of time I spent with the black press, then it's when I realized that, oh, no, this was an anthem for a movement. And, you know, Adam Clayton Powell writes this powerful article about attending this conference, I think it's February 36, and every major African-American figure was there, Langston Hughes, and I mean, you name it, they were all there to d discuss topics in the race, and the theme was Old Man Moses Dead, and you know, old and Powell riffs on it in the text, you know, Old Subservient Moses, and he goes on and on and on, and so uh, when Leonard Feather comes to America, and he goes to hear Armstrong in Harlem, He's just shocked by the audience when Armstrong does that number. They go into hysterics and they sing along and they go crazy. And I have a quote in the book, too, about one of the descendants of the owners of the Apollo Theater said that when Lewis would do that song, it would stop traffic. And so, you know, here is this kind of split again with Armstrong with the black audience and the jazz audience, where this might seem like a harmless kind of fun novelty. But to his black audience, this was probably his most popular song of the 1930s. Right. Well, let's hear it now. Louis Armstrong, Old Man Mose. crooked nose he lived in log hut and they call him old man Mose. Yeah. early one morning i knocked at his door didn't hear a single sound i ain't gonna do it no more because i believe old man. i believe old man. i believe old man. that old, old man, man Moses. i'm telling you i believe old man. i believe old man. i do believe Old man, that old man, man Moses dead now. Moses kick bucket. 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 I'm looking here. I went around to the side and I peeped through the crack. I saw an old man laying flat on his back. Yeah. If old man Moses was dead asleep, I did not know. But after looking through that window, mm, I ain't gonna do that no more. Cause I found out, I found out, I found out, that old man Moses, I'm telling you, I found out what it's all about. I found out that old man Moses dead now. Moses kick bucket, Moses kick bucket, Moses kick bucket, Moses kick the bucket, Moses kick the bucket. 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 Moses kick the bucket.
That was Louis Armstrong, Old Man Mose. I'm speaking with Ricky Riccardi about his uh, recent biographical volume on Louis Armstrong, Heartful of Rhythm, the big band years of Louis Armstrong, and um, mentioning uh, the popularity that Old Man Mose had with the black listeners, uh, Apollo theater goers, and at the NAACP conference there, which Adam Clayton Powell, among others, uh, reports on. You're reminding me that it seems as though Joe Glazer, as Armstrong's manager, really focuses his public relations efforts with the black press and that they are very responsive to Louis Armstrong at this period. Is there outreach as well to, you know, what what we would call the white press? Uh, or was it pretty much confined to, you know, the Chicago Defender and, you know, the uh, right. black press? It's a great question. From what I could tell... Glazer hired a representative for the black press, an African-American man named Alan McMillan, and he hired young Helen Oakley before she married Stanley Dance uh, to be um, the representative for the jazz press. I don't know how much he was doing with the general white press. He did put out press releases, and I would notice when Lewis would do like one-nighter tours, there was usually some boilerplate language that would show up. You know, the, the trumpet king of swing is in town, you know, star of pennies from heaven, decorate, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the black press thing, uh, it's it's one of, I think, the, the cornerstones of the book because all that stuff has been digitized now. And I, I was fascinated because I, I had read in some other places that, you know, oh, the, well, the black audience, they, they turned on Armstrong when he started doing pop songs and Guy Lombardo numbers, 1929, you know, they, they knew he was a sellout and he was making these movies in the thirties and, you know, and so I said, well, we have the black press. Let's, let's see what's going on here. And that's when it all just exploded for me that, you know, the way they, they covered him. I mean, it's, it's, I've made the comparison before, but it's similar to Joe Lewis. And I think a lot of that was Glazer because even when Glazer hit rock bottom before um, he started managing Louis Armstrong. When he started crawling back into show business and kind of producing all black reviews in Chicago, uh, there was the black press waiting for him. And they never mentioned his skeletons in the closet and gangster ties and rape charges or anything. They just, you know, Joe Glazer's made more, quote, you know, colored stars than anybody known to man. And so, you know, I think he realized like, okay, this, this is, you know, these people are good to me and I'm going to be good to them. And so uh, it works. It works in the black press. Poor Helen Oakley. I think she had a much harder time because once downbeat gets underway, I mean, the jazz press gives Armstrong a hard time pretty much from <laughs> from day one. Uh, but but, you know, just reading sometimes the simultaneous reviews like you know, the Imperial Theater concert in 36 where George Frazier and John Hammond are just blasting Lewis's band, the worst in the world, and this and that. And, you know, the black press was like, you know, Lewis Armstrong was the climax. And nobody could follow him. And George Gershwin was tapping his foot. And, you know, and they, they were just like, you know, wow. And so seeing the same audience, but two different readerships, you know, getting two different stories is pretty, uh, pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the Apollo and please elaborate a bit on Louis Armstrong's presence and popularity at the Apollo Theater in the 30s and 40s. Uh, as I recall, you note that he he was breaking attendance records at almost every new stop that he made there on 125th Street. Yeah, no, this this is actually uh, something I, I start the book in the prologue with this because I, I thought it was important. 
Um, and I, I'll admit, I didn't quite realize it either because I had spent so many years researching and writing about the All-Stars years, and I knew that there was a handful of Apollo appearances early on uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, but then after December 52, it dries up. And the last 19 years of Louis Armstrong's life, you know, if he ever went to the Apollo, it was probably as a patron. You know, they, he just wasn't welcome there anymore. And so about five or six years ago, the Apollo had a, a Hall of Fame kind of thing, and they inducted Lewis, and that's when I heard from a fairly prominent jazz writer who will remain nameless because he's a good friend, but he was like, why is the Apollo inducting Louis Armstrong into its Hall of Fame? It's not a black music Hall of Fame. You know, he barely played the Apollo. And that's why I said, well, let me go back and see. I, I Maybe he was there more than I thought. And that's when I saw that almost every year between 35 and 47, he always made sure to play the Apollo. And then writing and researching this book and diving into the black press, not only was he playing there, but he broke the records almost every time he played there. Uh, there was big articles previewing, big articles reviewing. I mean, it was just like stopping, like I said earlier, stopping traffic because Louis Armstrong was there, lines around the building. And even into the mid-40s and the late-40s, I mean, when he breaks up his big band, Joe Glazer apparently moved mountains uh, to get Armstrong's final engagement to be the Apollo, because he knew that was where it just had to end. That's where it kind of began in 35, and apparently the audience was there in full flight, and they loved every minute of it, and the next week, Buddy Johnson's orchestra followed um, Lewis and Variety, reviewed it, and they said, well, it's kind of a letdown after Lewis Armstrong last week, and so... Um, you know, I make the case, and I think the case was also made by um, Jack Schiffman uh, in his book on the Apollo, um, but, you know, when Lewis made this turn to the All-Stars, you know, a lot of people in the jazz press, you know, celebrated that Lewis was going back to his roots, but those roots were no longer uh, the hip, trendy sound, especially in Harlem, you know, the trumpet, trombone, clarinet thing just reeked of traditional jazz in new orleans and apparently the yeah the black audience has always supported lewis's commercial hits you know they loved their blueberry hill and mac the knife and stuff like that but to hear him wailing on muskrat ramble and all that stuff like that kind of that that time had passed so that's when the apollos you know stops booking him after 52 but don't sleep on those big band years i mean he is and he is an institution there without a doubt mm-hmm you know, Armstrong was groundbreaking. It seemed every turn, um, as I said to a friend recently, there's almost uh, something remarkable and historically significant uh, in every sentence of your narrative about Louis Armstrong. He was such a singular figure in so many ways. And of course, part of that was his breakthrough in Hollywood uh, movies. And of course, a big breakthrough in that uh, way was uh, the Bing Crosby movie, uh, Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, I mean, that, that's historic because, I mean, you think of how many African-Americans had already appeared in films at that point. I mean, I mean, Armstrong's not the first to appear in a film, of course, but to get featured billing, that was a big deal. And, you know, you watch the movie Pennies from Heaven today, and there he is, you know, right before the opening uh, title. There's four names, and there's Louis Armstrong, one of the, the top four build stars. And that had never happened. And that was uh, really thanks to Bing Crosby kind of demanding that Lewis get that billing and, and even appear in this film. I think Harry Cohen of Columbia Studios didn't even really see the point, but Bing was, you know, huge at this time and whatever Bing wanted, he got. And Lewis took this very seriously because it was a comedic role. And I think there was always a part of him that, you know, 
he probably fantasized. I know I fantasized that if he never picked up the trumpet, you know, he probably could have had a successful career as a comedian, as a as a Red Fox or a Timmy Rogers or, or something like that, because he was so funny and just encyclopedia of dirty jokes and situations and facial expressions and all that kind of stuff. And so Pennies from Heaven comes out. And at first, the black press is just, you know, over the moon. You know, Bernice Patton and the. Um, uh, Pittsburgh Courier writes how Armstrong stole the picture from Bing and how his scene had the biggest laughs and, the, and when he did his skeleton in the closet number, the whole theater of critics applauded and um, it's great but then there was one critic also in the Pittsburgh Courier a uh, guy named Porter Roberts whose whole job was just to kind of like <laughs> criticize African American he was African American but it was just you know he would get on Fats Waller's case he would get on everybody's case about what they weren't doing right and how they were embarrassing the race and you know, do doing this and doing that and so he was like you know Louis Armstrong playing a chicken thief this is you know this is truly embarrassing Joe Glazer should be hammered for doing this and but a more nuanced debate appeared in the pages of the New York Age and uh, I quote heavily from it where there's a, a young woman who is arguing that, you know, we want better roles in movies and we're not sure this is it. And, you know, we're young and this is kind of, you know, not we're not really comfortable with this. But then there was a man named Alfred Duckett, also African-American. He helped write Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. He's saying, no, this is great. Louis Armstrong is a gifted comedian. He, his personality is his own, his voice, his timing, you know, and, uh, you know, so the, yeah, the whole thing about being a chicken thief, he said, well, there's white chicken thieves too. Well, yeah, the, the other woman didn't appreciate that. And so you know, we need to have better representation. And they, they go back and forth. And so it's wild seeing Lewis as this kind of lightning rod that, you know, um, it's a, it's a, it's a piece that we would probably cringe if we watched it today. And I have a quote from Lewis in the sixties where he recounts every line of dialogue. Cause he still remembered him. And then he brags about how it was the biggest laugh in the picture. But then he immediately says, you can't do those scenes anymore today. The NAACP wouldn't allow it. Yeah. <laughs> and so even he knew that the times had changed, but to live it and breathe it in 1936, you know, to get the biggest laugh in a Bing Crosby movie and featured billing, you know, uh, I, I've probably mentioned this a few times, but when Leonard Feather does this piece in 1941 asking Lewis for the biggest accomplishments of his career, you know, the first thing Lewis mentions is the Fleischmann's East radio show, and the second thing he mentions is Pennies from Heaven. And so I think those kinds of things, you know, breaking down a barrier in film, breaking down a barrier in radio, you know, advancing the cause by one more step, those meant more to him than, oh, I played a great trumpet solo that influenced a lot of people, you know, that he can do in his sleep, but, you know, actually knocking down a barrier and, you know, that's, that's what he lived for. And of course, the Fleischmann's radio show marked the first time an African-American hosted a national um, syndicated show, right? Correct, and a sponsored show. I mean, that, that's the crazy part. When you think of, like, Nat King Cole on TV in 1957, unable to get a sponsor, this is 1937. Flight from the show was already an established thing. It was hosted by Rudy Valley. Rudy Valley takes 13 weeks off to go to England. He says he wants Louis Armstrong uh, as his successor, and the Fleischmann's East people said fine. I mean, yeah, but they, they had their own... Uh, demands which ended up torpedoing the show you know they hired a white writer a guy named octavus roy cohen who specialized in black dialect and when you listen to the credits they they bill cohen first above lewis armstrong so there's still some 
some uncomfortable aspects. And of course, uh, this inspires more heated debate and infighting in the black press where Lewis is pretty much uh, excluded from it. Everybody agrees that he's great, but the show featured two comedians, um, Gigi James and Eddie Green, uh, doing these six, seven minute sketches written by this white guy in dialect and they're full of stereotypes and you know, you could the audience is kind of not into it and they slowed down every show and uh, after 13 weeks the show got canceled and that inspired more debate where it was like man this was our chance and all we did was complain and we didn't write letters and we didn't support it and you know who knows when we're going to get this chance again and sure enough I, I haven't been able to pinpoint it, but I don't think there was another uh, African-American hosted sponsored show until well into the 1940s. Uh, so uh, it was a, kind of a failed opportunity in one way of looking at it. But again, when Leonard Feather asked Lewis, that was the first thing he mentioned because he knew it was such a big deal. And in the black press, my God, the days leading up to that first broadcast, you know, an entire nation awaits the first colored commercial broadcast. And please buy Fleischmann's East and write letters of support. And it, it was such a big moment. And um, the fact that it's usually kind of footnoted in when people write about Armstrong, you know, I think kind of sells it short of what it meant to him. Sure. Yeah. Among the uh, breakthroughs that Louis Armstrong fostered came through his his ballads, the love songs that he performed, and how he got through to uh, female listeners, especially both black and white, with some of these songs. And um, one that comes to mind is Duke Ellington's In My Solitude, which Armstrong recorded in the mid-30s. And as I understand it, it's the only Ellington song he ever recorded until he actually made an album with Duke in 1961. Do you have any uh, particular thoughts about Solitude as this uh, unique connection with Ellingtonia? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish I had a definitive answer about why more Ellington compositions didn't pass Armstrong's way. I mean, he did 15 or 16 songs by Fats Waller and Hoagy Carmichael. He had his favorites, Harold Arlen. Um, but Solitude is it. Uh, there is a uh, an air check from the mid-40s of him doing Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me. So it's possible that he might have did a few more live. Uh, but Solitude is it. Um, and my God, what he does with it, though, you know, you, you wish he, he tackled more. Because it's, you know, you alluded to it, but Armstrong was an incurable romantic. And anytime uh, the critics and all would talk about love songs and going commercial and all that stuff, I mean, these things were right in Lewis's wheelhouse. And it's through every decade, you know, whether it's I'm confessing in 1930 or solitude in 35 and later on Lavi and Rose, a kiss to build the dream on. I mean, he would put his whole heart and soul into these things because he just believed it. You know, I mean, very few guys could, you know, love songs usually kind of sappy in nature or a fat Waller would do a love song and burlesque the hell out of him. Lewis, you know, he was just like, ah, yes, love, romance, or or losing romance, solitude. Solid. Yeah, it's the Joe Bushkin line. Uh, well, it's actually a Bing Crosby line. They were, he was talking with Joe Bushkin about Lewis, and Bing Crosby called him the greatest singer of all time. And he goes, you know, when he sings a, a happy song, you feel happy. When he sings a sad song, you feel sad. And well, yeah, what more is there? <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it's all there. So solitude you know, Armstrong in the mid thirties, right before he had some throat issues in 36 and 37, he's got this, this tenor voice, which, uh, it's kind of bizarre. Occasionally it's like he could flip a switch 
and control the amount of gravel that he let <laughs> he let into his throat. But uh, Solitude is a pretty clean vocal from from this mid '30s period. Uh, the band is Louis Russell's. They're basically doing their Guy Lombardo thing, playing the melody of the saxophone section, and then Louis picks up the horn sticks super close to the melody he clearly respects it uh but in this period especially that that mid-30s decade period he just falls in love with these closing operatic cadenzas almost every some recordings you know like the last minute one minute of a three-minute record it's this closing cadenza where you're just waiting for the final high note and on this one he ends on a high f which was pretty much the the limit of his range you know trumpet g and this actually made headlines. Walter Winchell, who had the most powerful column in the country at the time, Louis Armstrong ends his record of solitude with a high F. And I think he even has a throwaway line. Like, you know, musicians tell me this is very impressive. It's like, even Winchell didn't quite understand it. So that might have been planted by Glazer. But either way, you know, kind of solidifying that Armstrong's high note prowess and romanticism, all this kind of stuff, was marketable and super popular in this era. Mm. Well, let's enjoy it now. Louis Armstrong, In My Solitude. Thank you. 
Louis Armstrong here in 1935 performing Duke Ellington's In My Solitude. And as we mentioned earlier, that was really the only Duke Ellington song that Armstrong recorded until his meeting with Duke in 1961. And that's a great session in and of itself called The Great Summit. Ricky, um, to sort of conclude part three here of our conversation about Louis Armstrong and your great book, Heart Full of Rhythm, how about looking at when the Saints go marching in, which I think is 1938, and uh, a groundbreaking recording in its own way in bringing the sacred and secular together in song. And I, I was not aware until I read in Heart Full of Rhythm that this generated a controversy among African Americans. I'm fully aware that Ray Charles was quite controversial uh, 15, 18 years later when he recorded I Got a Woman. But here is really uh, another groundbreaking uh, moment in Louis Armstrong's career. Yeah, and, you know, on the surface, When the Saints Go Marching In seems like the least controversial song of all time. I mean, uh, when we're recording this interview, it's Mardi Gras week, and just going on social media this week and seeing bands large and small. I saw a friend posted uh, a video of her elementary school son playing it on ukulele and yeah and so yeah the, the song is just ubiquitous and everybody kids everyone knows it sings it marches along but at the time uh it was very daring to the point where lewis originally wanted to record it for okay in november 1931 and he mentioned it at a session and his friend charlie carpenter was there and said that lewis launched into it sitting on a table swinging his legs played chorus after chorus of how he would swing it and the executives from OK Records were like, nope, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not even going to go there, because in in Lewis's neighborhood, you know, this is what they did. You know, they took the spirituals, they swung them, and what the funerals and saints go marching in. I mean, he talks about singing that in church. He talks about playing it with the Waifs Home Band. I mean, this was really something that had been following them around forever. But it wasn't like that outside of New Orleans, you know, spiritual music was sacred, sacred music was sacred, you know, we don't jazz them up. And so I don't know, don't know the conversation that occurred ahead of time, but somehow May 13th, 1938, Lewis convinced Decca uh, to take a chance. And so this kind of pared, pared down version of of Louis Russell's band. Um, I, I think Lewis is the only trumpet. It's kind of reed heavy. Uh, great little arrangement. Paul Barberin on drums, bringing out those those street beats. I mean, there's a record, uh, I'm sorry, there's a tape in Lewis's collection where he listens to this years later, and all he talks about is Barberin, about how he had a dancer that can make a, I'm sorry, he had a, he had a beat that can make a dancer break his leg. And so, you know, Lewis is at home. He had guests in the studio singing, um, it's a, I don't I forget the name. There was a woman named Joan Boone who visited the Armstrong house about seven eight years ago, and she mentioned that her mother was that female voice. You know, was a, was a friend of Lewis's and a guest in the studio. You know, answering him with "When the Saints." So big, happy, fun, jolly record. It and but Decca for some reason I didn't notice that they didn't release it for almost a year. So it was recorded in May 38. It doesn't see the light of day until April of 39. So they might have been feeling a little trepidatious, but they put it out there. And here comes the critics. And it was mostly in the religious sections of the black press, uh, especially the Pittsburgh Courier. Multiple reverends went public and said that this was basically blasphemy, that doing this to this kind of music uh, is just, you know, 
the worst possible thing you could do. And there was a letter writing campaign and, you know, multiple letters to the editor agreeing with this. And Lewis was caught by surprise. The Pittsburgh Courier, you know, caught up with him for a follow-up story. And he said, this is how we always did it. You know, I, I'm, I didn't mean to offend anybody. But it just goes to show you, like you said, you know, Ray Charles understandably gets, you know, um, the credit, you could say, for taking, um, you know, gospel chord changes and putting songs of love and sex and loss, on, you know, on top of those changes uh, with I Got a Woman, Hallelujah, I Just Love Her So. And so that was controversial on its own end. But Lewis, again, always someone's got to be first, you know, taking an actual spiritual and swinging it and then getting this controversy, you know, uh, it just shows that, you know, nothing ever comes easy. And so even the song that every kid and musician around the world knows and plays and sings to this day, um, it had kind of a bumpy arrival. But once it was accepted, I don't think anybody ever looked back. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ricky Riccardi. Nice to speak with you again, and we'll carry on the next time. But for now, and for a Jazz Beat, I'm Tom Reaney. Thanks to Katie Wright for production assistance. And here is Louis Armstrong when the Saints go marching in. Sisters and brothers, this is Reverend Satchmo getting ready to beat out this mellow sermon for you. My text this evening, when the Saints go marching in. Here come Brother Hickenbottom down the aisle with his trombones. Blow it, boy. Thank <laughs> you.